My name is Keith Beavers, and just like, you know, I'm thinking like, wow, Disney bought Star Wars. And just like, I get to watch Star Wars. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. What's going on, wine lovers? Welcome to episode 27 of Vine Pairs Wine 101 podcast. My name is Keith Beavers. I am the tastings director of Vine Pair. Hello, how are you? I'm fine. I mean, we're not going to talk about all of the wine stuff happening in all the places outside of California, but there's some places you have to understand that are really cool you probably already know about. But also, let's have a discussion about what's going on in the future of American wine. Why not? This episode of Wine 101 is sponsored by Columbia Winery. As Washington's original premium winery, Columbia Winery proudly carries a long legacy of discovering and celebrating exceptional Washington wine. Our rich history, as well as the distinct terroir of the great Columbia Valley, allows us to craft wines that embody Washington's unique spirit and curious nature. Columbia Winery offers a collection of rich and deliciously enjoyable wines inspired by the diversity of Washington's best growing regions. Created through visionary winemaking and unrelenting curiosity, Columbia Winery. So I'm sure like, wow, this is a, this title's a little insane, right? Like what are the, outside of California, like what do you need to know about wine in the United States? And it, we still haven't talked about all of California, but this is what, this is going to lead into a very interesting conversation I want to have with you wine lovers out there is that we've talked about Sonoma. We've talked about Napa. We've talked about uh, the central coast. We did not talk about the southern part of California. We did not talk about the northern part of California. There are other wine growing and producing regions in California that are stunning, stunning wine, like the north coast, Mendocino, Clarksburg. In the south, there's Temecula, which is an emerging wine growing region. But this is an episode I think we should talk about what's going on outside of California because of what the United States is, is a wine drinking, wine growing, wine producing, vine growing, viticultural, vinicultural country. The thing that Thomas Jefferson aspired to back in the day with a bunch of hit or miss because of the lack of knowledge with plant morphology and science and botany and all the stuff that we have now that we didn't have then. I mean, really, it all began because we had people coming from Europe to this country that it was just part of their lifestyle to have wine. It's just part, it was part of their food. It was part of their dinner. It was part of their meals. So planting vines and making wine from those grapes is, it was a natural thing to do. And unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, just the fact was that in the colonies on the eastern coast, there was a lot of problems with climate and pests and all this stuff. It didn't really work that well. But while that was happening, we were still forcing it to, 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 to happen, if you will. I mean, we were, like, before the Civil War, we had wine vines growing in the Ohio Valley. We had vines growing in the Erie, just on Erie, Lake Erie, which we do still now again today. We had vines growing in Missouri. We had vines growing in Texas. We absolutely had vines growing in Southern California. That's where this, you know, California wine kind of began with the missions of the Franciscan monks over there in the West Coast. And when we, what, what, what we, I'm an East Coaster, so I say we, <laughs> what we were doing on the East Coast 
back in the day, we had no idea what the West Coast was doing. It was just kind of just all over the place. I mean, I'm sure people knew what other people were doing, but, you know, there wasn't email. It was just like, you know, it was hard to get information from one coast to the next coast and from one part of the country from the Midwest even to the East Coast. And it was a rough go for a while there. I mean, we were Europeans planting European vines in this new soil, in this new land with tons of climatic and, like, natural challenges, and it didn't really work that well. But then we found, hey, there's actually these native grapes here in the United States or the colonies or whatever. Let's plant these. And the result was wine, but not the kind of wine that we were used to in Europe. So we were like, nah, let's try to make this Vitis vinifera thing work. So we keep on trying to make that work. And in doing so, it just so happens that every once in a while, a natural crossing of a European variety and an American variety would come about. It's called a hybrid. And this hybrid would have some aspects of European variety but it would have like the hardiness and the ability to survive in the climates and all the stuff in this new land. The only problem was wines made from American Vitis Labrusca or Proparia, whatever they were called now, and these hybrids would often have this really odd, distinct, kind of musky animal smell to them that they called foxy. I mean, we know now that it's a compound called methyl anthranilate, and it's very unique to these American varieties and hybrids. And we also know now the best way to get rid of these is to pick early, harvest early, or age for a long time in cask, or just rack the hell out of it until it's gone. And there were a lot of them that had this sort of unfortunate aroma to them, but there were also some that didn't. There are some successes, and to this day, they're still being used. Hybrids with names like Catawba, Delaware, Isabella, and the really most famous one was Norton. So there's also ones called Saval, Saval Blanc, Vidal, all these different names. A lot of them are white, not all of them are red. Norton is the most, is one of the most successful red ones. We have another one called Baco Noir. And if we weren't forcing Merlot and Cab and Chardonnay into these soils, we were just using these hybrids. And we were trying to develop our wine culture through these hybrids. And it was, that's why California is so important. is Because in California, these, these European varieties tended to do well. The Mission Grape, which is the grape that kind of started the wine thing in California, was brought to California by Franciscan monks. That grape is actually a native Spanish grape called... Listan Prieto, and it traveled all the way all around the world, and it finally made it to California, and they called it the Mission Grape because it was planted in the missions going all the way up from San Diego to Sonoma. So that's a Vitis vinifera variety, and it did just fine. So when Cabernet Sauvignon, Zinfandel, Chardonnay, Merlot, Cab Franc, all these varieties start doing well, then, you know, we start focusing on them. Of course, the Mission Grape is always around, but... It's a Vitis vinifera. So <laughs> this is how it starts working in California. That's why all eyes were sort of on California. But of course, so was the gold rush. The gold rush happened in California. So there's just all this attention on this state. And it just so happens it was a great place to grow certain vines. But while all that was happening, wine was being grown in Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, the Ohio Valley, Lake Erie, Missouri, like, even though it wasn't really working that well, we were doing it. We had these hybrids. And then what happened is this louse called phylloxera starts attacking all the vines in Europe and in the United States. 
kills 85% of Europeans' vines. It goes crazy wild in, in the United States as well. It starts depleting our vines all over the place. It took us a while, a few, I think it was four or five years to get to, to figure it out. We figured it out through a collaboration between the Americans and the French. We figured it out. We never killed phylloxera. It's still around, but we figured out how to combat it by using American rootstock because the phylloxera is an American louse and putting American rootstock on European vines. Therefore, the phylloxera is like, I don't know what that is. I don't want to, I guess I'm not hungry. I thought I was hungry, but I'm not hungry. And this actually whole thing led to us actually making hybrid vines proactively instead of like, oh, look, a new grape popped up because of nature. <laughs> no, we actually started making them thousands and thousands of different hybrids to put out there. Not all of them made good wine or made wine at all, or they could make anything that was any remote, anything remotely like wine, but a lot of them did, like hundreds of them did. We made thousands of them and hundreds of them could make wine. And a lot of places in the United States held on to this for a while because it was, it was the one way that wine could be made. And we got out of this whole phylloxera thing. California had the eyes of the world on it for, for just, just after, after, after the, the gold rush. Things were happening, which we've talked about in previous episodes. And then in 1919, we decided to make it illegal to drink alcohol. And that basically ruined all the progress we had made <laughs> up until that point. And then in 1933, after that, you know, after that it decimated all, pretty much the entire alcohol industry was pretty much almost decimated. We, we emerged out of that, but we emerged out of that with a sweet tooth. It, the wine we were drinking in Prohibition wasn't, the, wasn't dry red wine or, or com complex white wine. It was really sweet, high alcohol hooch. It was, it, that's what it was, and that's what we were used to. So coming out of Prohibition was very hard for us to figure out what fine wine or good, fine, dry red or white wine was, and it wasn't until the 1960s that we kind of figured it out. People like Robert Mondavi were inspired by the winemakers that kept the thing going in Napa after Prohibition. And it was in California that we started seeing these sort of really nice, fine red wines. And that kind of inspired other winemakers. And there's a lot of activity going on in California. Then in 1976, the Judgment of Paris showed that the wine from California was winning awards that would beat out French wine, and that was our watershed moment, and we became the winemaking country that Thomas Jefferson had always wanted. But before that, things were even happening north of California in Oregon in the 1960s. There were winemakers up there that had left California to go make wine there because they wanted to make Pinot Noir, or they wanted to plant Vitis Vinifera wines in the hills, the Dundee Hills around Portland. And people were like, nah, that's not going to work. So they went and did it because someone told them they couldn't do it. And in doing so, created what is now the Willamette Valley, and one of the most sought-after places for Pinot Noir in the country and in the world. And that was all happening before we had these things called AVAs. And north of Oregon, you have Washington State, which just even a little bit later than that, started saying, you know what, we can do wine as well. And that's where the Columbia Valley started coming into play. While all that was happening, wine was still being made in New York. Actually, the Finger Lakes had a huge industry of wine being made. It was still kind of hybrid-y, and there, there was a Concord grape, and they were trying Riesling at this point, and all the different kinds of like cold, like winter-hardy vines. And then in 1976, 
the Farmers Winery Act was passed in Long in, in New York, and now you had these winemakers out in Long Island buying up these potato fields and turning them into wineries. And then from 1978 to 1980, we created what's called the American Viticultural Area, which is our way of having an appellation system in the United States. It is nothing like the old world in Europe. It is a very loose, very um, lenient system. It's basically used to demarcate an area if you can prove it has a certain kind of unique soil type, a unique climate, but it can also be political. It's, it's, it's America. It's, a, it's just what we do. But when we created that, and then the first one was awarded to Augusta, Missouri, which is old school. They're still making wine there. <laughs> you know, for all this time, even after Prohibition and through all this time with the, with, the, with the Judgment of Paris, Missouri was still making wine, and they were the first ones to apply. They got an AVA. Then after that, the second one was Napa Valley. And then from the 1980s until literally last week, we have been <laughs> adding AVAs to our land. I mean, a lot of the AVAs we had rushed in between the 80s and the 90s, but I was told by um, one of the hosts of the Vine Pair podcast last week that there is an AVA that was, that's being awarded to Hawaii. I was talking to a winemaker in Washington State that said about two weeks ago since the recording of this podcast, there's two new AVAs in Washington State. And I guess you could say for a long time, we didn't think about any of this stuff, right? I mean, like, what? so what? It's California. That's what's, that's what's important. It's, it's New York. It's Washington. It's Oregon. Those are important places because of the, the, just the, because of the track record. But there's other places that work in the United States that make great wine. The thing is, we're a big country, and it's not going to work in every place. But if we're smart which we're getting smarter and smarter. The people making wine in this country are just like, the things that they're coming up with is incredible. They're thinking about the soil, not the vine. They're thinking about the climate, not the vine. And then once they get the climate and they get the soil, then they find the vine that works in that soil. We're finally at a place in our history in America where we're willing to try whatever does well in whatever soil. If there is a grape, there's, a, there's an Austrian grape called Grunewettliner. It is awesome from Long Island. It is delicious. But the thing is, no one knows what Grunewettliner is, so it doesn't do as well. But in the future, it could, because once it get, catches on, people will know that variety does well there, and maybe we'll have, like, Grunewelt, Long Island Grunewettliner will be a thing. And it could be. That's We're only 240-something years old. We had, a t we had 10 years of prohibition. We had to come back as a country from that. Our drinking culture is still kind of young. We actually had a stunted growth, if you will. So the thing is, what you should know is that, yeah, Oregon makes amazing Pinot Noir in the Willamette Valley and all of its subregions. But Oregon also makes amazing Cab Franc, amazing Pinot Gris, amazing Riesling, amazing... Muller Turgau, and there are other wine regions in Oregon in the south, like Rogue Valley, that are doing great things. You should know that in Washington State, they were once really well known for the Riesling, but now they're really more known for their Merlot. And now they're also really known for their Cab, but they really should be known for their Syrah, but not enough people are making Syrah in Washington State because it seems like it's just Cab, 
Cab and Merlot and Riesling are more popular, but if you've ever had a Syrah from Washington State, Columbia Valley, Rattlesnake Hills, it, they're beautiful. They're peppery and dark and wonderful. You should know that in New York State, they make absolutely stunning, amazing Riesling, and now they're known for it. But there's also great Cab Franc coming out of the Finger Lakes. There's also great Merlot coming out of Long Island. The Gruner Veltliner is coming out of Long Island. There's a lot happening in that area now that it's getting more and more popular and more people are understanding the soils. You should also know that Virginia is making absolutely stunning wines right now that sets it apart from every other wine region in the country. They're making amazing wine from a grape called Petit Mansang, which is a blending variety from Bordeaux. They're making amazing Viognier, Pinot Noir, Cab Franc, Merlot, Chardonnay, it's a, and the beauty of Virginia is all these wines are, they're just the more, they're elegant. There's more acidity in the wines in, in Virginia than anywhere else in any other region in the country. You should also know that there's wine being made in Arizona, which actually I had some great red wine in Arizona. I had one of my favorite white wines ever, a, a, Mal, a white wine from the great Malvasia from Arizona that was absolutely delicious. You should also know that there is wine being made in New Mexico, some of the best Sparkling wine in America is being made in New Mexico. You should also know that in, in Texas, Texas is doing something really special. Think about Texas. Fun fact is that's the home of T.V. Munson. That's the guy who worked with the French to figure out that American rootstock on European vines helped stem the tide of phylloxera. So that's pretty cool. So he was also a hybrid guy. So he created hundreds and hundreds of hybrids. So Texas has always been kind of a hybrid uh, wine-making place. And the, the few AVAs that are emerging out of Texas, like the Texas High Plains up in the northwestern part of the state or the Texas Hill Country, which is right smack dab in the middle of the state, there are things happening here where Vitis vinifera vines are being grown and they're successfully being grown, like Merlot, Tempranillo, Syrah, Movedra, and some of them are being blended with hybrid grapes, and the success rate is stupendous. I recently had a, a Texas red. It was Merlot, Tempranillo, and a hybrid called Ruby Cabernet. The wine was awesome. <laughs> it was, and for me, it was like, this is an American wine. This is absolutely an American wine because of the blend. And Augusta, Missouri, they're still making wine in Augusta, Missouri. It's the first AVA in America. I recently had a red wine from the Norton variety from Missouri, and it was, it was awesome. It was meaty, and juicy, and soft, and, and great. But when it comes to Vitis vinifera, the thing is, we are still working on it in the United States. We still have a long way to go. And the best way that we can kind of help this along is we have to understand that we're not always going to be a place that ha makes a lot of wine to get all over the place. We also have really weird laws. Post-prohibition laws gave, gave every state its own, you know, go ahead and create your own law. So every state in our country is its own country of wine and liquor laws. But the way we can do this is we have to visit these places. We have to go to Virginia, go to Texas, Go to New Mexico, go to Arizona, go to New York, go to Oregon, go to Washington, of course go to California. We visit these places 
I mean, the places that you can get wine all over the place is one thing, but when you go to places that they just don't do the production to get across the country, it's not because they don't make good wine. It's because they're making good wine, but in smaller amounts because they're concentrating on quality, not quantity. And that's where America's going. And I think that's what's exciting about American wine. I want to thank Sean Hales, winemaker at Columbia Winery in Washington, for some great info on this episode. If you're digging what I'm doing, picking up what I'm putting down, go ahead and give me a rating on iTunes or tell your friends to subscribe. You can subscribe. If you like to type, go ahead and send a, you know, a review or something like that. But let's get this wine podcast up so everybody can learn about wine. Check me out on Instagram. It's at VinePearKeith. And also, you've got to follow VinePear on Instagram, which is at VinePear. And don't forget to listen to the VinePear podcast, which is hosted by Erica, Adam, and Zach. It's a great deep dive into drinks culture every week. Now for some credits. How about that? Wine 101 is recorded and produced by yours truly, Keith Beavers, at the VinePair headquarters in New York City. I want to give a big old shout out to co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mellon. I also want to thank Daniel Grinberg for making the most legit Wine 101 logo. And I got to thank Darby Seaside for making this amazing song. I mean, listen to this epic stuff. And finally, I want to thank the Vine Pear staff for helping me learn more every day. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week. This episode of Wine 101 is sponsored by Columbia Winery. As Washington's original premium winery, Columbia Winery proudly carries a long legacy of discovering and celebrating exceptional Washington wine. Our rich history, as well as the distinct terroir of the great Columbia Valley, allows us to craft wines that embody Washington's unique spirit and curious nature. Columbia Winery offers a collection of rich and deliciously enjoyable wines inspired by the diversity of Washington's best growing regions. Created through visionary winemaking and unrelenting curiosity, Columbia Winery.